Welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. And we are a married couple with four children living in Billings, Montana. And we are currently experiencing, like many of you, the uh, stresses of life between radically more expensive grocery bills, children who misbehave, life with just demands all the time. Bodies that are old and breaking down. Yeah, that too. Vehicles that aren't working properly all the time. That too. An oven that isn't working well. Yes, thank you for reminding me. We had an oven go down. We have got this fancy double oven we've had for since we moved in. And the bottom needed a new, I forget what it's called. But I found it on like an appliance store for like 15 bucks. And it was a, I don't know, 20 minute change out. And then it worked great. Igniter. It needed a new igniter. So I'll... Um, Run the codes. I'll make it a point. Game. I'm just going to replace the igniter. Okay. Make it a point just to replace the igniter. Call it good because the bottom one works. So I'm going to assume the same one. Well, sometimes the top oven comes on and sometimes it doesn't is the problem. Is it's not consistent, but I can't rely on it. I was making mm. cookies the other day and I had the top oven preheating and it just said mm-hmm. low the whole time and it never warmed up. I think and that's the, just the thing. And going then the out. next time, I, okay. Yeah, I'll bet it's just the igniter going out. Sometimes it works, sometimes it's just a finally. The crazy thing fails. is, you guys, JR did some Googling and he figured out how to run the codes on the computer part of the oven, which I wouldn't have even thought it had codes, but it told him exactly what was wrong. That wasn't that wasn't Google, but I when I was trying to diagnose when I was googling and diagnosing, somebody said. Oh, the owner's the manual. owner's manual. There's a technical manual taped to the back of it, and all these appliances have it. So the service guy will come in, pull the exact. So I just did what the service guy did, but I wouldn't have known that had I not been on Google looking for it. And I the service see. manual had everything in it, so I was like, "Oh, sweet!" So I pulled the oven out and opened the service manual. Sweet, good. Yeah. So are you taking Tito biking on Saturday? I have no idea. We've okay. got judo. I, th- I think. Oh. There's judo on Saturday. I think, or was it last supposed to be? I don't. I have not thought into tomorrow, much less. Okay. Well, I was just going to see if you were going to fix the oven on Saturday. If you were not going by. I would have to order a part. Oh, okay. I would have to come in. So even if I ordered it today, it wouldn't. Sorry, guys. You're probably wondering what you expect to hear on the show. Well, you're listening (laughs) to it. Here it is. Messy life of people who haven't had time to talk about things the rest of the week. Yeah. So most of it's kind of... I I don't even see notes up for you right now. I can't find my notebook. One of them is right here. You're working on Canavox stuff. No, this isn't Canavox stuff. This is actually the only real thinking that I've done this week has been related to church. And so I have my notes from church from both Sunday and Wednesday on this clipboard. Oh, Okay, cool. I use a notebook for all my notes for stuff. I mean, when they do handouts like that, it's not quite as Easy not quite as conducive a for a notebook. But so I you really guys, just like other, having everything in one place all the time. The other thing going on in our house right now is I took the girls to violin lessons, which is normal on a Thursday now that school's going. But then I had to go get gas because the light was on as soon as I turned the truck on. And then I had to, and we get gas at a place where we get rewards. So it was kind of a side trip to go get gas. And then I had to go to the grocery store because, uh, speaking of escalating grocery bills, we do a once a month Costco trip. And we did that last week. 
I'm still kind of reeling from that. So I haven't stocked up on our basics. So this morning we were out of yogurt, which our kids eat yogurt for breakfast a lot. We had a couple cups of milk worth uh, left in the container. We were out of eggs. JR used the last two eggs for himself. And what's the other? There's another staple that we were out of. So we had to run to the grocery store. And what a year ago at this time would have been a $40 run was a $70 grocery run. Oh, bananas. That's the other staple we were out of. Usually if the kids are complaining that they're hungry, I tell them, eat a banana and then come back to me and we'll discuss if you can have more of a snack. But we've been out of bananas for four or five days. And so um, I had to stock up on bananas. You know, and I, I record most transactions for budgeting purposes and, you know, just trying to keep us on track. And it's getting really difficult to keep us on track because like our, our Costco bill historically has somewhere been between two and 400, 400 on the outside too, if it's a no, light month. On a, since I started doing the once a month trip, it's been four to five. Right. What I'm saying is it's gone up. Yeah. Now it's seven. To, yeah. Six to eight. Somewhere yeah. in there. It's nah, it's it's never been eight. I had a seven hundred. Mine last one sevens. was seven fifty. Yeah. It's close enough to eight. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're running a little bit later than normal and I have the kids upstairs doing everything for dinner. Perfect. I wrote a to do list on the board. We're having tacos, so they are literally cooking the meat and shredding cheese and chopping lettuce and setting the table and heating up tortillas and I just heard some yelling which reminded me that there's possibly some chaos going on up there and hopefully we will come up to a fully prepared taco meal and I'm guessing given given (laughs) given Elise's desire to make sure everything is constantly perfect and everything is accounted for and everybody's satisfied the and titus's desire for control control yeah exactly where i'm going like we get a lot of conflict with just those two things yep you know and so part of it's trying to encourage titus on how to maybe we can start working with titus on how to maintain control but yet work with somebody like elise and somebody like elise who can who can think through things she that spreads might miss chaos still just like, like a child running throwing yeah. glitter at things i feel like it's a little bit like a business i mean i'm not in i'm not managing really anybody right now but it's like this business you know how do you work with certain people and i don't know coach I, certain people to work it, with it, these people raising and, children it is a terrible comparison i'm sorry like you have paid employees and they have to toe the line if you're a business. Here's not, a, I've never worked in that kind of business. Every business I've ever worked in has pretty much almost been filled with childish people. Raising small children. This is a Desiring God article that I saw linked to and op- and bookmarked for later, but I opened the first paragraph. Raising small children, as any parent knows, can be a little like trying to train an unruly herd of squirrels on a small motorless boat during a severe hurricane. They're small and cute enough and seem mostly harmless, but that's what they want you to think. Anyway, he goes on to talk about how God is in our struggle. And it's a seems to be a lovely long article. But at the beginning, trying to manage squirrels on a boat in a hurricane feels a lot like what parenting is for me these days. Our kids, I don't know what it is. Kids go in cycles. But recently, our kids seem to lack 
self-control in a way that literally leaves me breathless at times. Like driving to violin today, Elise could not, Faith wanted her violin in a particular place next to her car seat. And Elise kept reaching over and moving it for no reason other than to make the kid next to her scream. There was zero reason for her to do it, except either a deliberate desire to antagonize or a complete lack of self-control over that desire to antagonize. And I feel like all of our kids have been experiencing that in various ways for the last week to the point where I made them sit at a table silently for 15 minutes the other day. And if they acted up while they were at the sitting at the table silent, they could do anything silently that they wanted. They could read, they could color, but they had to sit silently. And Faith and Elise both got more time because they weren't doing it. And they were the main reason. Well, all of them were. Anyway, lots of fruit of the spirit needed to be worked on in our home right now, including my own. <laughs> anyway, um, so too bad there aren't other people here who can have a more lively, interesting conversation. Uh, so last weekend, you guys, we had Lily sleeping on the couch several nights of last week. Because she couldn't fall asleep because she was worried about fires and burglars. And she was afraid that if she did fall asleep, she would have bad dreams about fires and burglars. Or she would wake up and not be able to fall back asleep because she was worried about fires and burglars. And we had several nights of trying different techniques like, okay, I'll sit in your room until you fall asleep, which is miserable for me. And But I've done it before to keep Faith and Elise quiet so everyone can fall asleep if, if need be. And she, I thought that Lily was asleep and I went downstairs and she came downstairs and was then crying. And I said, okay, fine, sleep on the couch. And then she laid there and didn't, I don't know what she expects me to do at this point, which is part of the, the challenge is it's very frustrating to have a kid who has fears that you can't stop but she thinks that you should somehow be able to help her and um so anyway we finally made her cry herself to sleep on the couch because there was nothing I could do and and here's the deal I, I couldn't tell her in good conscience you're you'll be fine I can't say our house will never burn down it's not as totally rational fear but it's not an irrational fear our smoke alarms went off a couple of the first second day of school what day of school was it of the whole year a couple weeks ago first we couldn't get the smoke alarms turned off so our kids were woken up an hour and a half earlier than normal to screaming smoke alarms in everybody's room we talked about this. It was traumatic. They they didn't want to sleep in their room because they were afraid the alarms would go off. But so JR took the smoke alarm out of their room. And then they didn't want to sleep because there was no smoke alarm to warn them of it. But but there is people's houses burned down. I can't guarantee that our house will never burn down. I can say we've we have ladders out of the second story windows that we could climb out of. We have the smoke alarms. We do our best to think things ahead. I can give her all the practical wisdom, but I can't honestly say, no, you shouldn't, you, you will be fine. Your house will never burn down. Same thing with burglars. 
I can't honestly say, no, we're totally safe. Nobody will ever rob our house. Nobody will ever try to enter our house while we're here. We live in a city that has a huge meth problem, and it happens. Drug-crazed people drive into houses and do crazy things, and just, you can't guarantee these things to your kids, because you're not God, and you're trying to teach your kids that you have a loving God who's taking care of them, but they're looking around at the world and realizing that really hard things happen and developing fears. So so do you think there's a place <sighs> for reassurance when the reassurance isn't strictly true? I think there's a place for true reassurance, which is even for a nine-year-old girl... I understand that the world is a big and scary place and that there are big and scary things that are out of our control. As you guys, some of you who've been with us for a long time know, Lily also struggles with fear of thunder and tornadoes. And Montana, Billings, Montana, historically gets an average of one tornado every 50 years. <laughs> I cannot honestly say, no, we never get tornadoes here. You shouldn't be afraid of ever getting a tornado because... We get a tornado every 50 years, and just because we got one, what was it, when Tito was one on Father's Day, the big one that ripped up the heights, I think Titus was one, so that was 2011. That doesn't mean the average isn't going to mean there can't be another tornado while Lily's living in this house. So, but but what I can say is, I know I know what it's like to live in a world that is out of control, that feels out of control but I also have to trust a God for myself and for you and for our whole family. Trust that that God is in control of the storms and that God will take care of us in a way that he deems good, even in the midst of fears of robbers and of fires and things like that. And unfortunately for her and for us, that doesn't calm her fears and... It has left us with multiple nights of way less sleep for her and for us than I would like. But that's that's the honest answer. And if I'm being really honest, sometimes, more often than not, sometimes that answer doesn't always feel super satisfying for me either. Because I want a God who does what I think is good and who does what I feel, what makes me feel safe. And it doesn't necessarily translate into what God has deemed is good and best for me or for our family. But that's where I have to work really hard on trusting God's character in his righteousness and his goodness proven to us in his son that that he is actually being good, even if, you know, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. But I don't know how you bring that level of trust down to a nine-year-old who's just having trouble sleeping because she can't stop worrying about robbers and fires. Or without sounding like a Jesus juke every time you talk. Well, and and without, I mean, yeah, I don't want to minimize her fears. And I mean, I, I want to set them in the context of of reality. But reality also says, yeah, this is a really scary world. And, and actually, Lily, you don't live a fraction of the scariness that kids in other parts of the world live. And 
Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that to where like, oh, there's starving children in Africa and there's kids who are stranded just on our Telegram channel. I can't remember who it was, said that they have family or friends who are stranded in the attic of a house in Florida because the floodwaters have filled their entire house. I mean, that would be a tremendously scary situation to be a parent with children or a child yourself. And so, um, you know, I'm not going to add to Lily's fears by trying to put things in perspective. But also, as your sister Carrie says, if if I have one broken arm and the person next to me has two broken arms, does that mean my broken arm doesn't hurt and it doesn't count for me? You know, right. the pain that I have. So I I want Lily to feel cared for and heard by both me and her Heavenly Father in the midst of her fears. But I also want her to muster some stinking self-control and stay in bed and go to sleep. So... um all of that, I I actually had a mental note during our sermon on Sunday, and that's why I brought my sermon notes down with me, um, that, oh, I feel like I could talk to Lily. It was about the man when Jesus spit in the dirt and made mud mm-hmm. and healed the man uh, who, was blind, who was born blind. And I did not note what it was that made me think, oh, I should apply this point of the sermon to Lily's fears. Um, but I should have. Because <laughs> now I'm looking at the notes going, well, there's a lot of good stuff here, but I can't actually... Oh, you know what? Maybe it was John 1-4. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Maybe that was just it. That the lights go out and her fears, her fears multiply in the dark and just a simple reminder that Jesus is the light of the world. And even though the dark seems scary and overpowering, Jesus as the light of the world is bigger than that. But I also, if you recall in the sermon and in those of you who didn't hear the sermon, which was most of you, John nine, um, there's an assumption when the disciples ask Jesus who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Was it God foreknowing that he would be a sinner and so they made him be born blind? But the assumption is that sin, somebody's personal sin is the approximate cause of suffering, which I think that we all do to a certain extent. There's this desire to feel safe. And so if I'm just a good enough person, I'm going to be safe from X, Y, or Z. Bad thing that's happened to other people. Um, and the desire to comfort ourselves that bad things shouldn't happen to me because I'm a generally good person. That would be a great book title. But the, I'm wondering if there's an application point for me in, I feel like Lily not going to bed is sinning against me (laughs) in a sense. And Mm. what it's, I'm just, I'm literally processing aloud right now, but that, that it feels maybe, maybe her feeling afraid is less a function of having a sinful, unbelieving, lack of self-control heart, which I feel like, oh, if I can just apply enough scripture to that or 
scare it out of her mm-hmm. or disciple it out of her somehow, she's not going to be gripped by fear in this way. Versus, there's a kid howling upstairs crying. Versus that that she's experiencing the effects of living in a sin-ravaged world and that this is an opportunity to direct her to God's glory. Remember, Jesus says this man, neither this man or his parents sinned, but rather that God's glory may be shown in him or something along those lines. And so instead of trying to get Lily to repent of sin in whatever that is, maybe I need to be pointing her more towards the glory and goodness of God and trust that that glory and goodness will um, eventually drive the darkness and the fear of the dark out of her heart. I don't know if any of you guys have words of advice for us. Uh, it's exhausting to have a child who it seems fine during the day <laughs> and then the lights go out and she can't stay in bed because she's afraid. So if any of you guys have words of wisdom, feel free to send them in all of the methods that JR will recite at the end of this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any brilliant thoughts in responding to that? None. I don't have any. Just I, I've kind of just given up. Like, I feel like it's just it's go to bed. You'll grow out of it at minimum. I hope. I hope. There's a lot of people in our country right now who are suffering from crippling anxiety for a huge variety of reasons. And I I think that there's ways to love her and encourage her, hopefully, in that. Um, one, Send my mom up to her. Right. Your parents are usually asleep before she is. It's true. They're usually <laughs> asleep when all this goes down. Uh, the other thing that I've been thinking about a fair amount this week is, well, since yesterday, I guess, it, Wednesday night teaching that we've been going to, he is talking about the book of Judges and really going into depth on it, but he started by talking about the commands in Joshua for the people to totally wipe out the Canaanites. Okay, pause. There is a correlation and a parallel here. What's what does he say? He tells Joshua, "Fear not, do not be afraid." For I am with For you. how many times? 15 times in the first two chapters or something? That's true. A bunch. So, drawing a quick conclusion or a quick parallel back to Lily and her fears in your comment that maybe you need to be pointing her more towards God, that there could be a, uh, there's probably some, some, some counseling lessons to be drawn out of here with your study of judges, or at least this intro. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go ahead. Hmm. This is something I would come I would, I probably would have thought of as I was listening back to the show at the end or coming up with show notes, but, <laughs> um, but you the moment you said Joshua, sure. the moment it's just like boom. And the only reason I remember that is because when I was in college, that or specifically Word of Life, when I was doing counseling, when I was a counselor for uh, camps, um, one of my kind of go-to devotions I could 
usually just wing was out of the Exodus. First book, first chapter, Exodus or whatever. First second, Joshua or Exodus? Uh, or sorry, Joshua. Yeah. Um, where he's the do not be afraid passages. Mm. Because he is afraid to fill the big shoes that Moses left. Mm. Yeah. And then I could, I was able to tie it into first John or I am the word. What is that? First John one. Uh, no, that's love. John one. I was able to tie it into John one and that being the solution for the fear. And I remember it now, but super fuzzy. Hmm. Anyway. I was putting the was, when you do devotions every forced devotions every single night, and what for a cabin? No, like as part of your school. When I was at Word of Life, we had to do we well. We, I say forced devotions, but we also had deliberate Bible studies every single night, and that you just start drawing conclusions when you're in it that much. But wait, when you said you had to wing it, were you speaking? I would have to do. I would have to do, um, like once a week. I would have to do, for a different group of campers, I would have to do a devotion. Ah. And this was, that was just kind of my go-to. Ah. Because I could apply it to just about, at the time, I felt like I could apply it to just about anything they were going through. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was super easy. (laughs) I mean, fear not, for I am with you is a pretty universal. Yeah, it's pretty universal. That's why you could apply it to anything. For anybody and anything. There's a lot of things to be afraid of in this world. Uh, I feel like it would be Jesus juking people in Florida right now to go to Isaiah oh. and say, when the waves come, they will not overwhelm you. <laughs> I am just not even going to say anything about that situation. About Florida? I got a notification that somebody messaged me on or mentioned me on Twitter and I jumped on Twitter and trending topics. And it's just all about... DeSantis asking for for federal disaster relief money, which he voted no for New York and New Jersey in 2013. So it's just like that people was are all mad ev- and say oh, he deserves it. Everything. No, actually, interestingly, the the language has changed a little bit. It's not it's not a deserve it. It's, we're still gonna we're still gonna do it as as Democrats as blue because we're not you know traitorous inconsiderate buttholes or something like that oh. you know so it's all about we're better than you it mm-hmm. has nothing to do with like we're not going to send you any because you don't deserve it it's like oh we'll send it to you because we're better than you oh, it's a it's a point of righteousness oh what a sad frustrating world we live in I remembered why i got out of any any discussion about twitter politics. um so good twitter's good bad twitter's really really bad so at the end of now I'm trying to find the part of my notes. So basically what I'm trying to talk to you guys about, which I haven't very well so far, is the question of in Joshua about totally destroying the Canaanites, the harem warfare, where God says you must completely wipe them out and... um. The, the whole struggle with that is why would God wipe out an entire people group? And he, I have not heard as good of a discussion of this as I feel like I heard on Wednesday night. And really? so, yes, I, the way he put it in his story, in, in the context of the whole Bible, 
I have never heard about Holy War, it specifically the the Joshua judges mandate, well the Joshua mandate to to wipe out all of the Canaanites. I've never heard it put in the context of all of scripture. So one of the things he says is you, which this is not uncommon to talk about, but you have to talk about the nature of God, which is that he is holy and he always does what is just. So we have to understand this in the nature of him acting out of his righteousness and justice. He is the creator of everything. He owns everything. He has the right to, um, as he says in Exodus, my Bible reading this morning was Exodus 30 forward. And at one point he says, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy which means I will enact justice on whom I will enact justice. And then he goes on, I'm not sure that I've ever heard Romans 6.23 applied to the holy war against the Canaanites, which is the wages of sin is death. And the Canaanites were a sinful people. They deserved death. And going on and on, he he basically concludes saying this action against the Canaanites was God's judgment on them using Israel as an agent, but this was God justly enacting judgment for sin and the wages of sin is death upon the people of Canaan. So in a sense, Israel was an instrument, but it wasn't God playing favorites. It was I'm using you to enact judgment upon these people. He also cited some language that compared it to um, to the Exodus. And there were, well, I guess, just skipping ahead to a point, but he's not enacting judgment on the Canaanites writ large. So it's not ethnic genocide because there were Canaanites like Rahab who were saved. So it's... It's again it's enacting judgment against a sinful people who if they repented were not judged and uh received the wages of their sin accordingly. They received mercy if they repented, but there seems to be language that he cites um that like Pharaoh sin had so hardened their hearts that they chose to battle against God's chosen people, and therefore they died basically waging war against God, not in in their hardness of heart, in their sin. And so it's not this ethnic warfare that we tend to hear the take the conquest of Canaan as being cast. If you're if you're wanting to commit ethnic genocide, you don't select mm-hmm. people like Rahab out of it and then put them into the lineage of the savior. <laughs> you you wipe out the entire nation regardless of of individual favorites. He also compared it to looking back the flood. So he says this isn't the first cataclysmic judgment for sin that God has ever enacted. There was a worse one before, the flood. And, you know, so you can count on two hands the number of people who survived that judgment for a sin. So this is not nearly as cataclysmic as that. And there's a worse one coming in the book of Revelation. And uh, his phrase is, 
the book of Revelation predicts unimaginable catastrophes upon the unrepentant at the end of this age. Uh, that's a, that is, I need to use I need to use that as a mic drop whenever I get into a post millennial, amillennial, pre millennial argument with somebody, or whether or not Revelation is literal or figurative. <laughs> And just be like, you know what the point is? <laughs> Unrepentant destruction. I also, okay, here's a side trail for End you guys. End of story. I'm going to send JR this link, which is one of my seminary classmates. Uh, his name is Tommy Keen. He now has his PhD. He's being installed right now at, uh, or in a few weeks at RTS DC. Interestingly, I have two classmates who are now professors at RTS in DC. And, but Tommy, I follow on Facebook and he's moderately active on Facebook. And I'm not sure he's, yep. His PhD supervisor was Dan McCartney, who was a new Testament guy at Westminster. So he's got to be a new Testament guy, but he has published a series of blog posts on revelation. And he said the, everything you need to know about the book of revelation you get in chapter one. And it's a very interesting blog post for a number of reasons, but I absolutely love things that take the craziness of Revelation and distill it into... His main point was, the book. how is the book of Revelation? It's a letter to you, but originally it was in God's wisdom. It's to all of us as Mm -hmm. believers now, but it's specifically addressed to people during the time of John. And it was meant to be read aloud because most of the people who first received it couldn't couldn't read. And so it was meant to be read aloud in an assembly of people. And he said, the best way for you to understand and experience the book of Revelation is to find an audio version of it. And it was meant to be read aloud in one stretch. Oh, interesting. It's, this is a comprehensive... How long is, does it take to go through reading it? I don't actually know. I, I, we could look it up on YouTube really quickly. Four hours? I don't know. But Two it was hours? meant to be read aloud in one stretch. And definitely longer than an hour. I don't know. Especially at audiobook quality of reading. The Book of Revelation audio Bible, one hour and 10 minutes. Oh. One hour and 15 minutes. Must not as so, long as I thought. So, yeah, hour and a half on the outside huh. of reading aloud. That's a long sermon, <laughs> but it's a not out of bounds for something that adults could sit through in a stretch especially i mean movies are longer than that think about the imagery you're getting in revelation right and that's the thing he said is it's it's not meant to be for the first readers it wasn't meant to be set you weren't supposed to sit and analyze it it actually was comprehensible to these people as they were sitting and listening to it it was referring to people and events and things that they could sit and understand as presumably fairly uneducated mm-hmm. new testament you know what 70 AD yeah believers so he says that's the basic framework for understanding revelation is it's talking about people and things that they would have understood and it's meant to be heard in one sitting and it's meant to be anyway it's it's a great piece and i will just okay. Commend it to you guys because I haven't read it for about a week now. And I'll send it to JR and we'll include the link in the show notes. Anyway, the 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 
Judges or Joshua, the conquest of the promised land in Joshua is a little bit of a microcosm, a pre, a foretaste of the judgment that's to come on unrepentant sinners at the end of times, which I, all of this makes a lot of, I mean, all of this makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, for the longest time and I'm, I can be, um, I was having this conversation today with one of my, one of my, uh, best friends from college. And since we graduated in 2003, we've seen each other off and on cause he was on tour in a metal band and we've swapped, you know, numerous texts over the course of all those years. But for some reason in a text yesterday or the day before I'd made a comment that made him go, I need to call you. So he called me and expressed some of the same things. And the premise was we're both not the same people we used to be. <laughs> There's more on that later. I think somebody needs to write a really good book on a male midlife crisis from a spiritual perspective. Nobody's done that yet. Anyway. Um, Paul Tripp has. Oh, Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp's done everything. Paul Tripp's great. So anyway, all that to say is like, I don't have, um, I'm not a, I'm a very dark person now. I was kind of just, we were musing about, I just don't have a lot of, like the exuberance, like the high school youth group, youth pastor exuberance sort of like youth group thing that, you know, cause I went with Titus to youth group on Wednesday and I'm just observing all the energy and excitement people have. And I don't have that. It ain't there. And so when I, I look at things from a darker perspective and so I've always kind of looked at this topic of, Oh, God's a homicidal genocidal maniac, you know, you know, vindictive deity or whatever atheist name you want to, you know, you want to bring up as, as said, and I'm like, well, no, it says in the very beginning of Genesis that we all deserve death. We're all going to die one way or the other. Like, that's what we're all getting. That's the default. That's the default of the human race. We are all going to die. How we go is rather irrelevant. We're all going to go. Where we go no, no, no. can be changed. I would argue with you on that. The very beginning of Genesis does not say we're all going to die. The You're very right. beginning of Roman Genesis says we're all going to die. The very but beginning the way, of Genesis but, says we were not made to suffer and die. Okay, fair. But that was the consequence of the fall. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That was the consequence of the fall. So we're all going to end up there. So it makes sense to me, like when, you know, when these things happen in scripture, well, it makes sense. I mean, that is the ultimate punishment. God's choosing to execute it early, which is his, his right. You know, he's God. Um, and that's the default. The default is we're already, all of humanity is already getting thrown into hell. That's the default. Yes. But the desire for life and for goodness that's built into us from before the fall right. makes us fight that. And apart from mm -hmm. apart from redemption, we we say do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. <laughs> well it's it's an easy it's an it I've used it before as a really easy segue into do you know what the Bible teaches? About <laughs> always, sin? sin and death and all that Sometimes goes well, sometimes doesn't. Yeah, but you have to be able to offer them the... Oh, I do. But that's where you. That's where I start, though. With the suffering? Yeah, with the suffering and the death. It's like you're questioning this, but you realize what the Bible teaches You can do that with an adult. Right? I can't do that with a nine-year-old. No, you can't do it with a nine-year-old kid. And that's... I wasn't thinking about her. I was thinking about other conversations I've had. 
Um, I've never been a very good evangelist. Just not, <laughs> not, I I'm not, wins- I'm that. not winsome. What I say does not win people over. I've never been a salesman. It doesn't work for me. But people are I will drawn tell you to the, the truth. fact that you're honest and they, and that yes. you care for them. But being drawn doesn't necessarily make you winsome. That's true. Um, man, you, there's a lot of screaming going More on effective. out there right now. Uh, Genesis fifteen sixteen talks is God talking to Abraham about the, now. There's somebody crying. I know. Uh, God is talking to Abraham about the promised land. He's promising the land to mm-hmm. him, and he said, uh, "Your people, your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation." For the iniquity of the Amorites, which is part of the people group in the Canaan, in Canaan, the promised land, is not yet complete. Implying that when their iniquity is complete, when it's at a boiling point, and they have sinned so much that God no longer gives them the chance to repent, then they will be punished and kicked out of that land. And so then in... in the book of of judges um the there's the very let's see judges one i think it's verse seven there's this very strange five through seven there's this very strange instance with a guy named adonai bezek which is like the mayor of bezek Mm. and he they defeat him and they cut off his thumbs and his toes. And Ugh. yeah, which there's there's a lot of different ways to take that. But that's what was common to defeat and humiliate because then they're no longer worthy of going into battle. And Adonai oh. Bezek says they did this. So they defeat him and they do this to him. And he says, doing this to me is righteous, is just because I have done this to so many other people. Hmm. And I made them crawl under my table like dogs while I was having my victory feast, like begging for scraps of food. So he says that he acknowledges and he doesn't just say them doing it. He acknowledges the justice of Yahweh in doing that to him, which is an interesting way to acknowledge the, the justice of I've been a horrible person. Do you think his eyes were opened at that time to uh, see that? Um, No, I think okay. it was like God using a donkey to speak truth to somebody. It was an instance of God. (laughs) True. Using. You're being an ass. So I'm going to use an actual ass to talk to you. Right. So here's an instance (laughs) where God is using a sinner to speak a prophetic truth. But it's also, he also points out that the, the, the Israelites doing this literally a couple verses into their conquest (laughs) is they're already adopting Canaanite ways and assimilating. God said, wipe them out, not, not adopt their yeah. ways of humiliating other mm-hmm. kings. And, but then the, the final phrase that this guy used in his study notes was that, hearkening back to Genesis fifteen sixteen, a culture ripe for judgment and their day of rep- reckoning has come. So um, going back to the, was it just for God to wipe them all out? They were ripe for judgment. And this now is their day of reckoning that God had promised as he said, their iniquity was not yet complete back in Genesis 15, and now it is. So, um, do you? So, this brings up a question that ran through my head, and you can—you'll be really good at correcting me. Probably not, but you're really good at it. Um, when you said when their iniquity is complete, do you think that could be taken? And I guess I'm extrapolating this out to like 
us now? Is our iniquity complete because we were born in sin? Or is there just more sinning to do? And I guess you get into a theological, you get into the theological argument of like, we can sin, uh, if we sin enough, we'll usher in God's kingdom type of of thing. You are not making any sense to me. That was there is a difference between the sin of a people. It's like there's a bull of God's wrath. I told you you'd be really good at crafting. And God me. is the they're filling the the bull of God's wrath by themselves. And God has said at, when it gets to a certain level, I'm no longer giving you the chance to repent. When this bull is filled up to this point, you God has set a point for those people. Yes. And and God has set a point for us too. And it is today is the day of salvation. If you hear his word, do not harden your hearts. We never know what where we outlast God's patience. He is extremely patient. I mean, over and over, Scripture says he is patient, he is merciful, he doesn't give us what our sins deserve. But if we harden our hearts and do not repent, we can't presume upon him. You never know what tomorrow brings. And, and if you are not living under God's mercy, then, then you, you should be living in fear and you should wonder at what point is God going to stop putting up with me? At what point is my sin complete, so to speak? And if you die in unrepentant sin, that's the point at which God's, your sin is complete and God has stopped giving you chances to repent. And I think the message for us in that is don't presume upon God that he is going to give you chance after chance to repent. But also, I mean, in my in my Bible reading today, the phrase that struck me again, I mean, the Exodus 30s and after God gives the laws, gives it, re-gives the Ten Commandments and shows himself to Moses and hides him in the cleft of the rock, which is where rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in the comes from and which is jesus right it's not just god hiding moses in the rock as the fantastic hymn goes on to say let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed so there's an immediate link by that oh my gosh i don't know if you guys could hear that on the microphone but there's like a kid being choked outside or something uh so anyway the songwriter does this fantastic leap from exodus 30 something to the end of the gospels in a literally in a breath and it's amazing but um that in the midst of that god's talking about the feast i think it's the feast of unloved bread and he at the end of this section now i have to pull it up because i don't want to get it wrong he says uh exodus 34 20 None shall appear before me empty-handed. So he's talking about you rede- You have to redeem all of your firstborn livestock and your firstborn sons. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. And immediately, I thought of Billy Graham crusades and nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. And clearly, the, the message in the New Testament and of that song, which I obviously is right, is is that we we can't offer anything to God that is enough to satisfy his wrath for our sins. And Jesus is that. So when he says, none shall appear before me empty-handed, what we're appearing before him with in our hands is the cross of Jesus. 
and um, I I think that's about it. I just he the, I'll just wrap up the holy war thing is that it it really is Romans six twenty three the wages of sin is death comma but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord and what the people who inherited the land not of their own merit in Old Testament Israel received was because of Jesus as well as the not getting the wages of sin for our own sin is only because of the gift of God that we have in Jesus. So holy warfare has everything to do with Jesus. Good word. Good word. And with that, we're going to end the show so we can see what sort of damage our kids have inflicted and if they've made tacos properly. Right. There you go. If you'd like to get a hold of us to give uh, Molly any feedback on, on helping Elizabeth through fear, you can do that at our website, www.toobusytoflush, all grammatically correct. Toobusytoflush.com. Scroll down, you'll see a little postcard option. Send us a postcard. You can also send us an email at tb, the number 2f, tb2f at pm, papamike.me. And you can shoot us an email there. Or you can do what most people do, or the majority of folks, or 70 people anyway. They've jumped on our Telegram group. And I'll include a link to the show notes in the Telegram channel. Or in our, uh, yeah, in the show notes to the Telegram channel. And click that link and follow it on through. We'll also include the Tommy Key links that Molly has mentioned as well. So, with that said, we are a weekly podcast. So, Lord willing, we'll be back next week there you go